Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with Tom Zollner, author of Rim to River, Looking into the Heart of Arizona, just published in 2023 by the University of Arizona Press. Tom Zollner's writings have appeared in every publication you can name, The Atlantic, Harper's, The American Scholar, Time, Foreign Policy, Men's Health, Slate, Scientific American, Audubon, Sierra, The LA Times, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. He was a finalist for the Bancroft Prize in History and has won the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's now an editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books and a professor of English at Chapman University in Orange County, California. Welcome, Tom. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So let's talk about this terrific book. Now, in your book, early in your book, you quote a former editor-in-chief at the University of Arizona Press who says that the as-yet unwritten great Arizona novel should have four things. Here's the four things it should have. It should deal in an honest way with Native Americans. The land should be an unmistakable presence. It should subvert the idea of the lone hero taming the West. And it should be able to be enjoyed by academics and the general reading public. And that strikes me as a very good description of your book, which is not a novel, but it does those four things. Thank you. I I take that as high praise. And, you know, how about that for sucking up to your publisher to actually quote one of its former editors in the pages of the book, not just the acknowledgments. Um, Yeah, that I should clarify that that was uh, a guy named Greg McNamee, who um, I, I knew first and foremost as a friend. And uh, his title there at uh, U of A Press just gives him a little extra credibility. But I think he's right about those um, those those four uh, touchstones that should be hit. And one of the essays in this book is a contention that that book does not yet exist, that there there is no uh, great Arizona novel such in the same way that, you know, I think we can consider uh, My Antonia as a great uh, Nebraska novel. Right. Right. Yeah, there's plenty of great candidates for the you know the great L.A. novel or the great New York novel, but yeah, the great Arizona novel, which never occurred to me until I read that passage in your book. I'm like, I guess he's right. Like, I guess people get close, but no one's done those four no things one, all at no once. No one's done it. No one's yeah. done like uh, A.B. Guthrie's uh, The Big Sky uh, about Montana, you know, in right. Arizona, and I'm still waiting for it. Okay, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. But this is a cl- this is very very close, and so of course I see that passage in the beginning. You're I, well, of course, as a reader, I have to say, well, let's see, can this guy do it? And you certainly did. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, I want to open with a passage from another early page of your book. Here's what you say. I thought this was terrific. You say, this is you, quote, I have extremely complicated feelings for this place where I grew up, was educated, spent part of a career, fell in love with its people and places, and had my heart broken by some of its failures. I have despaired over elements of Arizona, even as I have taken inspiration in its dazzling visitors the intriguing people who call it home, and the enduring spirit of fresh beginnings that for decades has made it one of the fastest growing states in the nation. Now, I'm speaking to you from the middle of New Jersey, and I could pretty safely say that nobody's walking around New Jersey feeling this about the Garden State, not to knock my home state, but um, there's something about yours, right? So here's my first question. Why Arizona? Like, okay, yeah, you grew up there, but millions of people grew up in millions of places. What is it about this place that fascinates you and makes you think, you know what? Readers will be fascinated by this as well. It's still unformed. Um, We just uh, passed uh, about 10 years ago a a centennial, 
You know, this is probably the most immature state in the in the 50. Um, this is a place where people have uh, Anglo's specifically have moved in uh, for fresh beginnings and new starts in in a blank slate, and that creates a kind of a uh, dysfunctional sociology, which is reflected in some of our crazy politics, uh, reflected in some of the reckless uh, development, the overspending of water, um, the uh, uh, policies on wildfires, which have um, run out of control. Um, you really see a, a microcosm of American discontents in Arizona, but you also see a crystallization of uh, some of its promises. Um, some of the mythologies, which, although exaggerated, still have a, a kind of a grain of truth to them. You can move to Arizona and live a good life and reinvent yourself and be incredibly inspired. And I, I don't mean to take away from that. Yeah. Well, you say later in the book, you say you compare it to a romantic partner and you say, you know, it's like a romantic partner whose greatest flaws make them attractive and mysterious. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, as, a, as a friend of mine once put it, you know, the same qualities that make you fall in love with that person are what drives you nuts in the end. <laughs> you know, uh, the seeds of the marriage are the perhaps the seeds of the of the divorce. And uh, for me personally, you know, uh, having grown up there, it seemed like a bad photocopy of a, of a different kind of America. I can remember, and you'll laugh at this, uh, uh, Dan, that I, I begged my father, you know, hey, could you please get a job in New Jersey? I had never seen New Jersey. I didn't know what it was. However, I just knew that, you know, you look at it on the map and it's kind of small and it's shaped like an S and it's close to New York City. And, it, you know, th that's where the important people live. You know, that's where interesting things happen, unlike this kind of uh, banal, you know, strip mall, uh, you, you, you torn apart, you know, nature of, of this place where I grew up, which seemed to me something was wrong with it and something seemed right in, in some way that I can't really fully articulate about uh, the East. And it was only later as, as I, you know, I was 18 before I crossed the Mississippi um, and, and saw New Jersey and saw, well, okay, uh, it, no place is perfect. Yeah, no place is perfect. That's right. Because somebody asked me when I finished your book and I was talking about it to a friend of mine, someone said, so what's, what's the guy's take on Arizona? Like what I was talking about the book. And I said, well, it's complicated. Like what's, what, you know, what, what's your take on your parents? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent, um, uh, comparison to make because yeah, there's, there's complicated love there. And, you know, just as, as parents are flawed, people are flawed, you know, so, so too our geography's flawed. And we, uh, have these early childhood imprints of both of them, which, uh, influence us going forward. You know, we wake up to a larger world in a specific geography. Um, you know, that happened, that has to happen somewhere. And, uh, when your, your childhood is out of a, an essentially arid place, you know, 12, 12 inches of rainfall a year, which, um, the Anglos that have settled it have, uh, worked like mad to try and deny the desert, to, uh, push back, uh, the, 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 the sense of, a of a dry, hot and hostile place, you know, that, that, that creates certain associations. Right. We'll get to that later about like, we're going to put a golf course here and all these other things we'll talk about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a psychologist <laughs> might point to even a kind of a Freudian repression yeah. in, in, in all this. Right. So let's talk about the way you did the book, because there's a, there's a hundred ways you could have told this story. You could have done it like as a straight history. You could have done this. I imagine this as like a book centered around like a group of people. Like we're going to follow the same people whose lives go and intersect in small ways that are going to go in and out of the book. But 
you approach the job of wrestling with Arizona by telling the story of your hike on the Arizona Trail punctuated by essays that connect to the hike and places you go through. Like, So I thought that was really interesting. The two sections that, that go back and forth in the book, they even have different page layouts. Like this is, this is Tom on the hike, and this is one of Tom's essays about something pertaining to it. So how did you decide on that structure? I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, just sort of um, uh, fell into place as, as, as I was doing the Arizona Trail and thinking of it as like, wow, you know, this is a um, geographically diverse place. This is a, an incredibly diverse place when it comes to um, uh, human geography. And the conceit is structured, um, as readers hopefully will quickly find out, as a quest uh, towards the uh, linguistic home of Arizona. Where does that name come from? In, in, in all the 50 states, this is really the only one where there's a lot of debate around what the heck does that mean even. And there's a couple of schools of thought um, one of which is that it comes from a, a word in the Tohodon Otham um, native tongue, meaning uh, small spring. But the other, which I find far more persuasive from just an evidentiary point of view, is that it is a term of Basque origin, the Basque language of northern Spain, where um, many of those who settled northern Mexico um, were were Basques, and that there was a a, a valley in, 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 in the far north, um, named Arizonac, which in Basque means the good oak tree. And this valley was the site of a you know, intense silver rush for about three weeks in 1736. It played out quick. You know, there were allegations of fraud, but still the term became this minor regional slang term, Arizona, the same way we might talk about, you know, gold rush in English or Klondike or Comstock. This signifier of something that is like, wow, get in fast because it's ain't going to last. And uh, a, a mining promoter named Charles Poston came across the name in an old uh, book written in Spanish by a guy named Velasquez and persuaded Abraham Lincoln to name the territory after this sort of forgotten slang word. And, and there you have it. And there you have I it. walk towards that valley. Um, yes. the, and, you know, the end, which I don't think is any sort of spoiler, is I was able to get into that valley, which is on private ground in Mexico. Right. Right. So, and that, and that keeps things, it keeps things like, you know, um, figuratively moving as you literally move, you know, through the book, right? And your books, you struck me as, you know, reading it for people who haven't read it yet, which I urge them to do. It's it kind of reminded me of like Paul Thoreau and, and John McPhee and, you know, Henry David Thoreau and, and those those kinds of people. Like, I, I take it that those are some of your, your role models. I, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn, but... Thank you. Those are all flattering um, <laughs> comparisons. Uh, Thoreau is uh, famously cranky. Yes. You know, <laughs> writes somewhat acidically about the people he meets. Um, right. Yeah, I, I try and do that only when warranted. When warranted. Okay. <laughs> well, let's, we're going to, in a book about Arizona, you know, it's almost like you're contractually obliged to talk about the Grand Canyon. So you start reading this book as a reader and I'm like, okay, where's the Grand Canyon? And you do something that was so fun to read is that you talk about the impossibility of talking and writing about the Grand Canyon. Here's what you say, quote, perhaps it is merciful that we cannot actually see the Grand Canyon. So talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> It's considered, um, and certainly in the 19th century, um, a, a preeminent uh, literary finger exercise to try and describe the Grand Canyon for those who haven't seen it. And you get these lavish descriptions of spires and pinnacles and different colors of ochre, uh, burnt umber, 
um, you know, colors that uh, you, you only see in a box of crayons. The crayon box. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And these, these are really intriguing literary exercises, but of course they're going to fail to capture it. And any photograph, no matter how talented the photographer, is not going to capture it. Nothing really ever can. And so it brings to mind um, questions about the nature of uh, reality itself. Can capital R reality ever be captured through language or photography? And aren't we just looking at incredibly uh, partial images? And it, you know, brings to mind, you know, some of the thoughts of Immanuel Kant about the way that the senses actually um, do not give us a direct experience of reality, that that's reserved only for when we meet God and that we're cloaked in this sort of suit of flesh that's, that's going to be removed uh, from our direct experiences. And so the Grand Canyon um, is, in some sense, the world's greatest optical illusion. Um, it is truly impossible for, you know, our softball-sized brains to comprehend the scale of geologic time, that, you know, the Vishnu basement rocks are two billion years old. How do you even conceive of that? So it it, it can be very upsetting um, to look at the Grand Canyon. Um, and it is beautiful, but I think the, you, the beauty contains a kind of a terror to it as well. And what is that terror that we can never really, we can never wrap our heads around yeah, these kinds mortality. of things? You know, uh, the cliched way to say it, which has been said, you know, someone is saying it right now as we speak at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You know, doesn't this make you feel so insignificant? Right, right. You know, and and, and that doesn't even capture the whole of how we, our central processing units, uh, will will not be able to apprehend um, the Grand Canyon. And so even a a hardcore atheist has to uh, look at that site and express, you know, a, a sense of wonder uh, that 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 um, bears the character of a uh, of a, a religious thought. You say in that chapter, you know, we'll never really get it, and you and and that struck me. That's true for your book as a whole, because I think the book is about your attempt to get Arizona, because you right. never claim you never claim in in the the three hundred pages like this is the last word in Arizona. You'll never, if anything, you go out of your way to keep reminding the reader, listen, this is just one guy's take on this state and it's very complicated yeah i mean that's the paradox of and i think you've experienced this as a writer too you know we have this urge towards completism right. we want we, we want our books to really kind of be the category killer and say everything there is to say and that is of course uh, a, a hopeless task shooting the moon it ain't gonna happen like your your book is a tiny snapshot um uh, and, and so that paradox certainly exists within this book of trying to fit 40 years of thinking and writing about Arizona into a single slim volume. And uh, yeah, in that sense, it's a it's a total failure the same way that every book is a total failure. <laughs> it, it will not do what you want it to do. Language right. will not do what you want it to do. Um, your, your own uh, perception of reality will not do what we want it to do, but that is the essence of art. Yes, because you're trying to compare, in this case, especially in your book, you're trying to compare, you're trying to put human time against geologic time, and they they don't go together. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they have only a distant relationship with one another. Um, (laughs) If I could go like really sort of uh, cosmic here just for a second, yeah, in that essay that you're talking about, which is titled Heidegger at the Grand Canyon, um, you know, there's a a quotation of a British um, physicist named Roger Penrose who... uh, came up with what I consider just a mind-blowing um, 
observation, which is kind of irrefutable in that we live in three simultaneous worlds, which is to say the world of mathematical measurements that, you know, there are um, numbers that surround us. Um, We live in the world of hard physicalities. And we also live in the world of cognition, of thoughts about, you know, those two other things, uh, the measurements and the physicality, and that they coexist, but they don't intersect. And, you know, that, that to me is astonishing. That's, 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 that's as uh, um, ineffable a, a, a mystery as the Holy Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> you say, you say about the cranium, you know, all the views are valid and none of them are complete. Yes. So, so let's, let's, let's try to get at though, let's try to get at Arizona. And I thought a fun way to do this is to, is I want to play like Arizona word association. So I want to talk about some of the themes of the book. And these are like big ideas and big issues that, that, that stuck out to me when I got finished reading and things I noted in the margins. And I'll, I'll throw a word or a phrase out to you. And then, and then I'll ask you to respond and talk about how that resonates with your experience of Arizona. Okay. So we'll start with a fun one. This is an early chapter. Here we go. Food. Do I get more than one word? You get, oh, sure. No, you get to give many words. What, because oh, okay. I want to ask you about your, right. the, the part yeah, about yeah. Martenio cuisine and, and the book. Sure. Um, there is a distinctively uh, regional cuisine in Arizona. Yeah. It's uh, not nearly as well defined as uh, what's been uh, crystallized as uh, New Mexican or even uh, Northern California uh, burritos. Uh, my argument here is that to understand. Uh, what's distinctive about Arizona food is to understand the collision in between um, the Norteño food of um, some of the the, the Spanish uh, ranchers, some of the uh, later Mexican ranchers in uh, northern Sonora, what was to become Arizona, uh, which drew on Mesoamerican uh, traditions of um, carbohydrates, specifically tortillas and uh, carne. Um and, and how that met the Southern food of Anglo miners. These guys were typically from uh, the former Confederacy, from Appalachia, and uh, they brought in lots of greasy bacon, uh, peach cobbler, um, honeyed ham, uh, these sorts of uh, traditionally kind of uh, down-home foods. And you bring those together and you get a kind of a unique Arizona uh, taste. Yeah. Um, then it made me hungry reading that chapter. It was like a lot of fun. Like, I'm like, I thought to myself, he's been eating this stuff his whole life off and on. And he said to himself at one day, well, where did this come from? Like, how did they, how did we all end up eating this stuff? And that's yeah. a great like investigation. Sure. Sure. The, uh, the, uh, the, the Anglo popularization of uh, Norteño food is one of the great uh, food stories of uh, North America. Yeah. Yeah, really it is. All right. Here's the next word I'm going to throw out to you. And then I'd like to hear your take on this and about how, cause this is a big, big theme of the book. I thought is, you know, subdivisions, yeah. housing and subdivisions. So can you talk sure. about that? Sure. I mean, uh, look, anyone, um, in, in the United States need only go to a medium sized city to see the proliferation of, uh, production homes which is to say the kind of, um, <laughs> put pejoratively, the cookie cutter uh, models of the same kind of, uh, you know, great room plus two bedrooms stamped out entire blocks at a time. You see this in Charlotte and Denver and Tampa, but you really see it in Arizona. This is um, our preeminent housing vocabulary. And so um, in a chapter called Monotony Rules, which um, I did not make up that chapter title. That's actually uh, a set of guidelines um, laid out for itself by a company called Taylor Morrison, which stamps out these houses, you know, like uh, like muffins in an oven. 
Um, and they have specific rules that, you know, there can't be more than three in a row of the same exact design to prevent that sort of thing where you, you know, come in one night drunk and, you know, go into the neighbor's house, you <laughs> don't even recognize your own house. <laughs> this is an, this is an opportunity to look into some of these subdivisions, which are, you know, the Arizona model, the, uh, sorry, let me correct that the Phoenix model of development, which was a specific thing in the 1950s involving, um, modes of living founded on, uh, freeways, uh, major arterial roads, uh, shopping malls on corners and the master plan subdivision that this is how, um, we decided that we should live. And a lot of this was pioneered in Phoenix and you see these subdivisions, some of the older ones aging in not so great ways in terms of, uh, decrepitude in terms of swimming pools, going green. Um, the cliche is, uh, we're building the slums of tomorrow. And uh, for this essay, I profiled a single house from start to finish, from from the day the the, the very first uh, survey stakes were laid to the day that the owner walked in. And uh, that was a journey of 18 months. And what is that neighborhood like? Um, I, I was really prepared to have my mind changed. I really went in with an open mind because it's easy to sort of, you know, take cheap shots at this sort of thing. Uh, but it, it it it's not, I don't think, um, a praiseworthy uh, mode of, of, of building a city. Mm-hmm. You say at one point, you say Russian military campaigns have been staged with less precise choreography than the construction of a street full of generic homes in a typical Arizona suburb. Mm-hmm. And you talk about that, that you do this experiment where you try to sit at the community center and make conversations with people as they walk by. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the city code of this, uh, booming city called surprise, which is on track to be become bigger than Salt Lake city, Utah. Um, you know, it mandates that you have to have like a certain amount of green space in your master plan subdivision, what we would call a park, you know, it's called an amenity area with, um, playgrounds and a couple of barbecues. And, 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 um, I sat out there one day at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, um, hoping to chat with passerby about, Hey, you know, tell me about where you live and, and do you like it? And what, what, what's really good about this place? And, um, somebody called nine one one on me, which, and, and I wasn't, I want to emphasize this, you know, I wasn't, you know, rushing up to people and, and acting strange. This, this was all very like kind of meek. And, you know, I, you know, gave a big, hopefully like kind of genuine, you know, smile the same way that you'd say hello to somebody out walking their dog. And I mean, needless to say, I got out of there. I didn't want to have an encounter with Surprise PD. And it would just have been, it would have been embarrassing. But it's also kind of like a window in on, like, is this the kind of place we live where, you know, smiling and, and, and sort of saying hi to someone? And I didn't get out very many words. Uh, this is what gets you called 911 on you. I mean, she didn't know that I didn't live there. I could have been some guy next door, for gosh sakes. Right. You say that Arizona, I think you said, at one point you say it comes like last in the country in terms of the people spending time with their neighbors. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, and, but then you also quote, it's kind of funny. You do this a lot in the book where you kind of like lead the reader down one, one side and then you kind of like show the other side. Cause then you, you quote that one fellow that lives in surprise, I think. And he says, well, I love living here because you don't see people laying around all day. They're doing stuff. And you also make the point that, well, if you're a young couple and you need a first house, like this, could, this could be a great place. Right. So yeah. there, like there is an argument for, yeah. Yeah. The, the, you're, you're absolutely right to point that out. And, and, uh, the people who defend, um, uh, this, uh, this kind of master planned way of life, you know, they're, they're not wrong. You know, it's, it's 
for for some, like it really is kind of a um, uh, a democracy involved where um, you, you, young families can get in at a relatively low price. Um, we need places to live. You know, we've got a terrible housing crisis. Um, and, and this, this is a solution. So, um, it's, it's, it's not all bad. And as, as one developer put it to me, like, look, you know, we're not cruise directors. I mean, these people moving in are adults. They're responsible for their own social lives. We're not supposed to give them everything. And, you know, that's true. Like they, you've, you've got to be entrepreneurial when it comes to, uh, to meeting folks, but, um, the trends of, you know, solitude. The Bowling Alone by yeah, uh, Bowling Alone, yeah, yeah, That's Daniel a... Putnam, really important book. I mean, you really see that thesis uh, in 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 effect in Arizona, in a place where, you know, for every uh, three new people that are moving in, two are moving out. Just a constant churn of uh, of, of of newcomers and and exiles. That's what you get with a booming state. Right. You talk about, you know, boosterism is a big theme of your book and about, you know, people, you know, but a lot of times you'll see that, you know, the boosters kind of like they'll, they'll lay out this grid of a, of a housing development and then, the, but the people that move in don't boost as much, so to speak. Yes. Um, this is as much on the home buyers as it is on the developers. You know, people do really have a responsibility for uh, the place where they live and to, to form those associations and um, w- one thing I hear consistently in, in, in these areas, um, it is the kind of loneliness and the detachment and, and some of the low grade fear that, uh, that, uh, unfortunately hangs invisibly. Yeah. Which is bigger. It's, that's true in, in a lot of places besides Arizona, right? I mean, it's like, absolutely. That, it, yeah. Like Arizona, like, like it kind of like epitomizes this, this bigger, bigger thing, like you said, in bowling alone. Yeah, this 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 absolutely happens everywhere. Um, you know the famous quote about California. It's like the rest of America, only more so. Uh, part part of my argument is you do see um, some of the hopes and some of the dysfunctions of uh, modern American society, and a little bit clearer focus in the forty eighth state. Yeah. Uh, let's move on. Let's move on to our next word and our next subject. Um, fascinating chapter. Again, something I would have never imagined was was um, this fraught with politics and and all kinds of things, which is fire. So let's talk about the wildfires you discuss in the book. Yes. So um, it's no surprise that forests are uh, drying out, that there is a, a a slow change in the ecology, and that um, they're burning hotter and faster and bigger. Uh, than than they did, and this inevitably runs into questions of um, politics, and of exactly when do you put the fire out? How how much um, do uh, federal managers let it burn? Which is what the current doctrine is, which um, began to shift in the 1970s, uh, but then took a reversal. Um, some listeners may be old enough to remember the uh, Yellowstone fires of the late eighties. I forget the exact year. I think I want to say 1988, uh, which is when, um, a a massive blaze, um, threatened structures in Yellowstone national park. And Ronald Reagan made the decision to, um, order an aggressive uh, approach to the fire when, uh, more modern environmental doctrine said, no, you need to chew up those fuels that are, uh, stacking up and are going to turn this thing into a, a bomb next time it comes around. And that's an example of what happens on nearly every, every major wildfire in the West is that when it gets close to houses and particularly rich people's houses, you know, that's when congressmen start getting those phone calls, those really panicked phone calls saying, you got to put this fire out. And uh, federal fire managers will re- reluctantly order an aggressive response. 
And um, some of these responses um, contain bureaucratic screw ups. And we lost 19 firefighters in Arizona to one of those uh, uh, miscalculations and miscommunications at a place called the Yarnell Hill in uh, 2013, where um, um, the winds abruptly changed and, and 19 guys were not where they probably should have been. And, you know, this is this is an example of um, the, uh, what do you call it, the let it burn policy being um, applied um, unequally. Yeah, because it's funny because having not knowing nothing about how to put out a forest fire myself, when I read your chapter, you know, the, the intuitive rea- reaction is, well, put it out. So when you see these things on the news, or when you hear about, the, you know, we just had all these wildfires in California, right? You think like, well, just like, just to try to put it out. But but you're, the great thing about your chapter is like, well, hang on a second. Like, it's really complicated. What do you do with this fire? And how does, how, how does thinking about this fire, how is that going to affect the next fire? Yes, aggressive response, and this is this is beyond doubt, and this has been proved over hard experience over the course of, you know, more than a hundred years of federal fire policy, that, um, you know, the visceral response. I mean, you're absolutely right on that, Dan. You know, that that's what we want to do. We 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 swing into stomp it out mode, uh, Smokey the Bear idea, but that um, that makes it far 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 worse the next time mm-hmm. around. Right. Yeah. So that was that was a really illuminating, uh, you know, part of your book. So from fire, naturally, we can turn to water. So let's talk about your chapter on water, which I just have to put in a fun fact here. This is your chapter called White Bones. And I'm going to let you tell the story of this chapter to the listeners. But I have to tell you this reading your chapter, I'm going through it. And at one point I write in the margins, this is just like Chinatown, the movie Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. And I was delighted a few pages later, you say, the water reserve under Arizona Outback is at the center of a Chinatown-like conspiracy theory. And I was like, oh, it was a great moment where our minds, I think, kind of intersected because it is like Chinatown, the Polanski film. It's exactly like that. So can you tell that story? Yeah, it's a great story. And there's not really a smoking gun here, but it doesn't mean that there isn't some circumstantial evidence. So just to lay this out, I'll try and be quick about the uh, the political details of this. So in 1980, Arizona passed what was called the Groundwater Management Act, which required any developer who wanted to uh, make a substantial new imprint um, to prove the existence of groundwater resources for up to 99 years after the development. So this is like an extra layer of paperwork, and it also requires like the presence of theoretical water. And what happened was cities started to panic, and places like Phoenix and Scottsdale and Tucson began to rush out and buy what they called water ranches, which is to say big, big stretches of water, of rural land with, you know, some kind of aquifer underneath them so that, you know, developers could point to that and say, well, there's my water. And, you know, this is like Something that uh, is uh, gets tempers really going in the West, um, as Mark Twain famously said, uh, "Whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting over." And no place guards its water more jealously than Yuma, Yuma County, with um, you know called the Winter Salad Bowl uh, all across the country. If you're eating, you know, lettuce in uh, January, it almost certainly came from. Uh, from the area around within 100 miles of Yuma, Arizona, where the the this is agribusiness on a titanic scale, and uh, state lawmakers were persuaded uh, just three years after this groundwater management act to create America's newest county, La Paz County, 
with a, a kind of a tiny population and a super weak county government. And part of the sort of speculation around this was this was to create a, an entity essentially to sign water deals that wouldn't fight the way that Yuma would fight. And this county um, is one of the, you know, perpetual um, uh, financial also-rans of Arizona. It's, you know, um, always in crisis, um, really uh, low GDP. And um, the idea that it was formed as kind of a, a water colony has been a shadowy part of its background. And I, I don't think it's a story that really has been explored enough. I tried to do what I could in this book. Yeah, it reminded me very much of it reminded me very much of a uh, you know in, in the movie There Will Be Blood where he talks about drainage and I drink your milkshake and where am I going to get this water from? It's it's the same idea of this 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 thing that again it's like you said before you're trying to get at a part of the Grand Canyon or a part of the state. In this chapter, it was almost like okay, this writer is trying to get at a part of this giant water conspiracy, which is just like Chinatown. Yeah, and uh, I think there's there's evidence that points towards. Um, uh, the, the the creation of a weak entity in which you can come on in there and take some of that uh, a- astonishing um, um, reserves in the aquifer, which, by the way, another part of the book, um, there's still unrestricted drawing on that. The, uh, the Saudi government um, has an ownership interest in an alfalfa farm where um, that f- cattle feed is, is uh, shipped by airline all the way to the other side of the globe to feed cows on the Arabian Peninsula. And this is a way of exporting um, Arizona water in a different form. And there's no law that yeah. can stop that. You you export the water as grass. That's definitely one thing that made me look up from the book and, and say like, what? Like, let me read that again. Like this is getting, the, the, it's water being exported as alfalfa to the, to the Arabian Peninsula. And, you know, again, it's like trying to connect all the dots, you know, on a map to see where that water goes. It was fascinating. Yeah. And, there, you know, it's not just the water under that ranch, as you, as you say, you know, it's the drink your milkshake thing. They can right. directional drill and, 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 and suck every drop that they can, you know, just sort of like if you picture like a lily pad on top of a pond, you know, they can drink the whole pond. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on. Next topic. The, another thing I, I learned completely about this from 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 nothing until I read your book, the Catalina Highway. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, outside to the north of uh, my hometown of Tucson, there's a, a really astonishing mountain range, uh, the Santa Catalinas. It's, it's what um, biologists call a sky island, which means that there's seven uh, different uh, zones of flora and fauna, all the way from uh, Douglas fir and snow and a rather Swiss-like landscape uh, up at the top to um, the upper Sonoran desert floor with saguaros and prickly pear at the bottom. It's they're really something to say. And um, there's this really crazy road, 27 miles long, that goes from the edge of Tucson up to the top of uh, the highest peak in this range, Mount Lemmon, where there's the southernmost ski resort in the United States. And this road was built uh, starting in the 1920s. You know, the civic energy in Tucson is, hey, we don't want to be this sort of, you know, backwater desert community. We want to be a four-season town, and we want to have, you know, rich people build their cabins up there at Mount Lemmon, and they got to get up there via road. And so um, in the waning days, this, the money finally came through in the waning days of the Hoover administration, oddly enough, not Roosevelt. Um, there was a, a Republican fixer who owned a, a newspaper in Tucson who was friends with President Hoover, and he got him to approve the cash on one of the very last days of, of the Hoover administration in uh, 1933. And the road was built with convict labor. 
um, prisoners, um, federal prisoners. Um, initially, it was um, uh, uh, people from Mexico trying to cross the border, uh, people selling alcohol up on the, um, uh, the native reservations. And then it turned into conscientious objectors of Japanese descent who uh, refused the draft. Oddly enough, uh, and I didn't really know this before uh, doing this chapter, um, if you were a Japanese man of good health and fighting age, um, you had the option to enlist in the U.S. military and not go to an internment camp. Uh, you could, not the Pacific Theater, uh, they would they kept you out of there, but you could go fight in Europe. You could go fight the, the Nazis in Europe. And um, many uh, Japanese men said, no, I'm not going to do that. And instead of going to places like Manzanar or Hart Mountain, uh, they went to this place called the Catalina Federal Honor Camp, where they were given, you know, shovels and told to uh, you know, build a road. Yeah. And, it's, and you quote the, the people that built it, and it's just a fascinating story about how hard it was to do that and, and why they chose to go there. Right. And this is one of those paradoxes because um, one never wants to uh, say that this was a good thing. Um, but, and, 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 you know, the, these voices were loud of, of, uh, the men who had been, uh, imprisoned there, uh, and, and made to work, you know, they almost to a person said, I rather would have been here doing this than in an internment camp. And in many ways, and this really speaks to kind of a, um, uh, an irrepressible part of the human spirit, you know, they were able to, um, make the best of their, uh, their fate. And um, in, in, in some weird way, even to appreciate uh, the landscape and, and the same. And you see the same things, too, at, at, at Manzanar, where, yes, it's a, it, it was a, a crime. It shouldn't have been done. Um, but you see the uh, the appropriation of the landscape and even sort of uh, folks redefining the terms of their own confinement. Yeah. You talk about in 2002, I'm looking at it right here, Ken Yoshida, who was there, talked about his time up there. And the last words of the chapter, he says, it's beautiful up there. He said, isn't it beautiful up there? Yeah. Yeah. And that that, that really surprised me. And I yeah. know, you know, it, it's not exactly, you, you never want to want to celebrate that kind of, you know, that kind of racism or that kind of imprisonment. Uh, but you also uh, can't uh, erase that voice. You know, uh, I, I felt strongly that Ken Yoshida should be allowed to to have that thought and, and, and to have, you know, not necessarily quell that thought in, in favor of like a, um, a, a monochromatic narrative. So, and, and this book is certainly not monochromatic in any way. A case in point, your, your book doesn't shy away. We did food and we did, you know, we'll do some fun things a little later, but it doesn't shy away from darker episodes. So the next thing I want to ask you about is um, the word would be, you know, Gabrielle. So can you talk about your chapter about Gabby Giffords? Yes. Um, we're talking about Gabrielle Giffords, um, the congresswoman from Southern Arizona who was uh, nearly killed in what amounted to an assassination attempt um, at a Safeway grocery store. Um, in Tucson on January 8th, uh, 2011. Uh, she uh, barely survived, but was uh, grievously wounded and will, you know, not be the same. Um, a friend of mine named Gabe Zarun was killed. Um, in, in all, uh, eight died and uh, 17 were injured. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the shooter was someone who was uh, suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, and a word that has always irritated me about this event um, is the word tragedy, 
because it implies, oh, you know, it's like an earthquake or a volcano or just, you know, it's, it's sort of this syrupy word that always just rubbed me the wrong way. That this, this is an event which was preventable. This, this was like an obscenity, as all mass shootings in the United States are. And certainly Arizona has no monopoly on violence. We see mass shootings and, and unfortunately, pretty much every American geography. Uh, but this one um, obviously really hit home. Um, and because of a combination of gun laws that um, allowed this guy to um, buy a Glock unchallenged, buy ammunition unchallenged when he was clearly incapable of taking care of himself, um, people who talked to him for more than two minutes realized there's something deeply wrong with this guy. How could he buy a gun? Um, the climate uh, in which he t- took that gun to the grocery store was uh, an incredibly heated one. Um, we saw Trumpism before Trump uh, in, in Arizona during that time. There was a really nasty uh, election, which Gabrielle had just won by the skin of her teeth. And uh, so much anger um, directed towards her for really no good reason. And um, I'm convinced that those sociological factors made this thing possible. And um, sort of to call it a tragedy is, to me, disavow responsibility for what happened. Yeah. Robert Frost said tragedy is when something terrible happens, but there's nobody to blame. But you, you, when you when you read your book, you know you clearly you, you you do you do draw a lot of lines and say this was a factor, this was a factor, this was a factor. It wasn't a tornado. Yeah, I, or, I like that quote. Yeah. I wish I had included it. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on from there, let's talk about copper. Another, you know, copper is like water in this book. Another another whole area of the Arizona experience that a reader will will get attuned to from reading your book. So talk about copper. Sure. Uh, the the Anglo settlement of Arizona and uh, the discovery of uh, cheap mass-produced electricity happened at the same time. Uh, and Arizona had a lot of this necessary mineral to give um, to uh, this, what amounted to the highest tech industry of the day. And, you know, this, this incredibly futuristic way that America was being literally rewired. Arizona was there for it. And this, this was concurrent with, um, with statehood. Um, this was uh, concurrent with corporate control of most of the economy. Uh, it had become essentially a colony with a, a governor and a state legislature that uh, were sort of pushed and pulled in between the temptations of um, this, this astonishing corporate wealth that was pouring into the state with a countervailing um, political force of uh, labor unions who were fighting for um, safer working conditions and better wages, but less honorably, they were also fighting against immigration. Uh, this was a case where some of the real racist forces in Arizona were, was coming from the union side. They really did not want um, uh, people of Mexican descent to be taking these jobs. And they would come up with all kinds of reasons why it was you know, a threat, you know, because these guys couldn't speak English. They were going to put people at risk in the mine, um, you know, kind of a bad faith argument. So, 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 so can you elaborate on that? Like, so how does the, co- how does the copper story, you think, how is that emblematic of the whole Arizona experience? Yeah. Um, Arizona needed copper. Arizona needed, you know, that, uh, that money and that influence to grow as, as she did. Um, and copper persists, although certainly de-emphasized. And there's a really rich load of it, um, which has gone untapped. It was too low grade for, uh, early miners really to, to make much use of, but 
uh, one of the biggest deposits in North America, not the, the biggest, but certainly a incredibly rich one, multi-billion dollar deposit lies in the Santa Rita Mountains outside Tucson. And um, its fate is perpetually ping-ponging in between um, uh, presidential administrations and uh, federal agencies, which will um, uh, give permits and then take permits away, federal court cases, which will um, delay the project. Um, it, it's just an endless story, seemingly endless story. And the question really comes, does Arizona need copper anymore? Are we going to, you know, um, get a couple of hundred jobs um, and then, um, you know, get this big hole in the mountains in return? Uh, I think there's an argument that you know, this, 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 this is a bad deal. Yeah. There's a lot. It struck me as one of the themes of the book is like, I'm going to tell you as a reader, the things that go on above the surface, but I'm also interested in the things that go on below the surface mm-hmm. and, and about how the, how the, um, we often read about how humans interact with the landscape, but, but one fun thing about your book is how humans interact with what's under the landscape. And that comes mm-hmm. up in the water chapter and the copper chapter as well. So let's let's move on. Our next word I want to throw out to you is a place name. And just as a as a side note, I loved all the place names in this book and all the you know like just throwaway bad Spanish names for developments and stuff. It reminded me of if you ever saw um the play Glengarry Glen Ross. They're always trying to sell it's land in Arizona and it's called Rio Rancho. It's like it means nothing. It just it just sounds you know it's oh it's Rio Rancho Estates. So you're big on place names, right? Um, and I want to ask you about this place name because I love this chapter. I want to ask you about Green Valley. <laughs> so tell tell me tell me and the readers about the listeners about Green Valley. Yeah, Green Valley is another kind of fake name, and it's one of the biggest uh, exclusively retirement towns in Arizona, part of uh, the retirement industrial complex. Um, this is thirteen percent of our state's GDP on uh, 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 geriatric residents in Arizona. The the the, the healthcare, the housing. Um, we're second only to Florida when it comes to uh, the sheer population of people who will move into Arizona uh, when they are of retirement age. And this provides its own unique sociology. Um, it's a town of seniors, and you get um, an interesting window into the, uh, into the ways that we uh, grow older. And what I found uh, was that it's a lot like high school that, you know, those who are um, prone to make friends, who have extroverted personalities, who like really get a lot of satisfaction from going out and being aggressive, being the prom king, being the, uh, the you know, the, the, the cheer captain, that, um, that, that will draw friends to you. But if you're lonely and introverted, like that's, you're probably going to be lonely and introverted. That sounds like a tautology, but you really do see um, early life dynamics kind of repeating themselves in, uh, in later life. And, you know, what you often find there is, uh, can be depressing. You know, people buy, um, somebody told me that they buy their bereavement cards, you know, the cards that they'll send to, you know, the, the widowed spouse in bulk. Impacts, right. Because they're going to need a lot of them. <laughs> and, uh, there, there's something, of course, tragic about that. Mortality is tragic. Um, the pet shelter there sees a lot of, um, uh, of, uh, euthanasia of pets done by the children who will come on in and have to, you know, clean out the house. And, you know, the, the, the last Fido, the last Fifi will, you know, often that's, the, that's their end too. And uh, the thrift store will see things like, uh, wedding photos where no one knows the names of the people in the, in the photos, um, 
it, 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 it does speak to kind of the dread that we all have of, of getting older and, and passing on. But I, I found a lot of hope in Green Valley, actually. I was kind of surprised at how uh, inspired I was by many of the people that, uh, that live there, even as, um, as difficult as some of their circumstances are. Well, they talk to you like you had an easier time, it seems, talking to the folks in Green Valley than you did with some of the folks in Surprise. For sure. Um, they were they were really welcoming in, in, in Green Valley in a way that they were not in sort of a conventional, you know, starter home subdivision. Yeah. And kudos to you because, you know, you get, you know, you, you make all the, there's jokes about the Green Valley grin and things like that. But certainly that struck me as a really terrific, like self-contained essay that you could take out of the book and give to somebody. And it really is a portrait of like, well, how are you supposed to think about getting old? Like, what are you supposed to do? Like, how do you, how do you go through your day? And what, what is it like to be in a place where you have to buy bereavement cards more than one at a time. And uh, I think, I think you do that without making it sentimental. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, what, what occurred to me, you know, as I was wrapping it up was, you know, they want what all of us want of any age, which is, you know, to ask these questions, existential questions about what, what is my purpose here and how can I make the best of the time that is allotted to me? And, you know, that really doesn't change between the time that you're 20 or when you're 80. And um, I found that really inspiring. So let's talk about that. The, like uh, the the next word I want to talk about before we wrap up is you know another story in this book about you said people want to make the best of it and do something right. Let's talk about tell our listeners about who's Daniel. Daniel is uh, the real first name, but I kept his last name out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a a guy from uh, the Mexican state of Quintana Roo, which is overrun uh, with uh, drug cartels and gangs, and it's. Uh, turns out to be very hard to find uh, any kind of work there where you don't have to deal with the gang, you know, whether they're going to want some sort of tribute or they're going to want a concession from you. And it's just a terrible circumstance in which um, to have to support a family as this guy is. And um, I think any of us would make the logical choice to try and do what we can for our families within reason. And um, to the, um, dismay of uh, some folks in the United States, you know, that logical outcome is coming to take a, a, a job in the United States and in one of the um, many, many sectors of the economy that depend on immigrant labor and uh, labor that uh, does not go through the formal process of taxation and citizenship. So um, I met uh, Daniel in um, Nogales, Sonora, which is a border town um, south of the border. And he had been caught by Border Patrol and kicked back, um, as, you know, uh, hundreds are every single day. And he told me about his experience. And um, it's no surprise that many people die uh, during this journey of dehydration. And it is a major humanitarian disaster um, that we've had several years running on the, on the border. Uh, it results in a federal, it's the result of a federal policy in which we armored up uh, the the traditional crossing points at uh, at Tijuana, at El Paso, at Yuma, at Nogales, um, and let the desert provide sort of a natural deterrent for this kind of crossing. And Trump's wall, Trump's infamous wall, was you know his attempt to come up with uh, an extremely expensive and useless um, quote unquote solution to this um, to this issue, and the deeper you dig into um, the total effect 
of this uh, movement of labor and people, the more you see that this is a real net benefit to the United States. That, um, and this is not a romantic view. This is uh, really a, a pragmatic, almost cold-blooded view that they pay more they pay more taxes than we suppose uh, in terms of sales tax, uh, in terms of property tax. Uh, they commit far fewer crimes than U.S. nationals do. Uh, they uh, have all kinds of uh, external benefits uh, from uh, the labor that they provide. And, you know, we have to ask the question, uh, is a armored up policy, a, a law enforcement militarized policy, really the right way to uh, get a handle on this? Mm-hmm. There are more, far more humane ways um, to uh, accommodate what is a, uh, a a natural flow of of labor and 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 the human beings behind it that no matter what we do is not going to stop. You compare Mexico to uh, a neighbor that uh, it is a neighbor, but you say it's a neighbor that's molded us from the very beginning and one we still can't embrace and still fail to understand. Yeah, um, as uh, the former New York Times correspondent uh, Alan Riding put it in a book title, Distant Neighbors. Um, they, they, they are, uh, we are intimately related, Arizona in particular, um, not, not just uh, a third of its population, but, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's culture, it's land. Um, there, there's just such an intimacy there, yet um, there's, there's such a, an aversion to uh, a true uh, exchange of, uh, of ideas and of people. And uh, it's, it's kind of one of the great tragedies of the, tragedies of the, of the modern Southwest. Last question and last quotation. We've already talked about Arizona. We've talked about that, about how the, the state got its name. But I want to throw out a quotation from you that I had never come across before. And I want to get your reaction to it. And I'm going to ask you a follow-up question about it. It's, a, it's a, by uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, right? And he says this. This is a quote. He says, we had one war with Mexico to take Arizona, and we should have another to make her take it back. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of, I, I, I never come across that. Uh, so then I read that. So that got, that got underlined naturally. But he, so here's my question. That's one opinion of Arizona. You have your opinions. Um, in what ways do you think this book, Rim to River, is, is a way for people who have never been to, to Arizona to kind of understand, you know, your opinions of it? Because, you know, Sherman had his opinions of it, right? So again, last, last thing about the book is what does Arizona, what does the story of Arizona say to people who have never even been there? There are surfaces to Arizona, which uh, are both uh, beguiling and somewhat horrifying. You know, there are consistent reports of uh, Anglo travelers uh, from the the end of the Civil War onward, looking at some of the deserts and 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 just being appalled. Yeah, and and, and Sherman and said, "This is what we did this for. We for this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this this, this hellhole. What 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 is this? My God, you know, there's there's that sort of appalling character, and and you know, the 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 settlers, the Anglo settlers of Arizona, worked mightily uh, to try and efface uh, that that that's kind of hostile appearance through. Uh, hydrology through the, the the planting of soft surfaces, particularly in Phoenix, to um, create a, a kind of a Pasadena, an appealing place um, with 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 meadows that uh, that would be an easier 
sell. And that sense of services uh, really persists uh, that in order to get a true experience of this of the state, you got to look deeper. Um, there, there is that, you know, um, horrible monochromatic um, carpet of stucco houses that we talked about earlier. Um, it deserves a deeper look. There is history there. There is life there. Um, the, the arterial canyons of Red Lobster and Bed Bath and & Beyond and uh, living spaces and so forth, um, those uh, were stamped down upon uh, a rich ecosystem which still flourishes uh, around the edges. And so in order to really, I think, uh, live deeply within Arizona, it's to uh, pause and um, to walk across it. As Edward Abbey once told people, you know, crawl across it on your bloody knees. And (laughs) I didn't quite do that, but I did walk uh, 790 miles across it in an attempt to understand it better and I think, as you astutely noted earlier, there really is no understanding it totally. You're never going to get the whole of it. This is this is merely one attempt, and everyone who moves here and lives here will have have their own experiences of Arizona. Well, Tom Zola, you, you certainly helped me understand Arizona, and and you know, and by extension, a lot of things in our own country a lot better from reading your book. It's been great talking to you today. Terrific being here. It's a real honor. Rim to River, Looking into the Heart of Arizona is available wherever books are sold. You can get a copy linked from the New Books Network website or wherever you get your books. So thank you again, Tom, for being here. And thank you, Dan.